This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Let me uh, pray for us as we start today. Father, I thank you for the most excellent word that we have just heard from your scriptures. I pray as we study it, you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand. Make our hearts soft and let us drink deeply from the waterfall of grace today. Work here in this place to allow me to only speak what is beneficial to us and what points us to you. I ask that your Holy Spirit guide us in all that we do here and that you powerfully work in us to change us to be more like you. Allow us to fall more in love with you. Let us flee from the desires of this world that entangle us so easily and entangle us with your goodness instead. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's an excellent day here to worship the Lord of God. I'd say it's excellent. It's not excellent because it's the weekend or because it's sunny out, but it's excellent because the Lord has saved us. Amen? Amen. I'm Andy, one of the elders here, and, it, uh, and I hope that as we dive in this morning, you'll be able to see the sufficiency of God's Word to fill your every need. I, <clears throat> or, as John MacArthur puts it as well, even though the Bible is an ancient document, every person in every situation in every society that's ever existed can find things in this book that endure forever. Here's a book that never needs another edition. It never needs to be edited, never has to be updated, and is never out of date or obsolete. It speaks to us poignantly and directly as it ever has to anyone in any century since it's been written. It's so pure that it lasts forever. So that's where we begin this morning. We're looking at the 11th Psalm in our Summer Psalm series. And as you see in your notes and on the screen, we have a lovely graphic at the top reminding us of the sermon series we're in. From week one, I was assuming that we were studying seven Summer Psalms. But as weeks seven, eight passed on to eight, nine, and ten, I soon realized that I was making an appointment at Lens Crafters in the morning because I can't distinguish between the picture of a harp and then number seven. Is anyone with me on that? I don't know. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> We've seen this summer that the Psalms have been especially applicable to our lives. Many of them, including the one that we just read, were written as songs of praise to our God. At the end of today, I hope we, like the psalmist, can turn to praise the King as an overflow of our hearts, not as a duty or obligation. I know, though, in reality, this will only be possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that is the end to which I strive this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 19, or you can follow along the screens also as we continue. As we dissect the psalm this morning, we're going to look at three major areas. First, God's work in creation, ultimately pointing to the Scriptures. Secondly, man's sinfulness and redemption. And thirdly, I want to leave us with some practical applications that we can do, we can act upon uh, to meet that goal. Let's begin with God's work in creation. Look at verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. So we have two objects that are mentioned here, the heavens and the skies. And both of them do very specific things. The heavens declare, and the skies proclaim. When the heavens declare, what does this mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
When something is declared, it is said in an authoritative way, as if what is being said has truth or permanency to it. The word declare has other meanings like confirm, claim, insist, or prove to be. So the heavens are speaking to us about the glory of God in a way that is revealing of God's true nature by allowing our eyes to behold it. When the skies proclaim, they are pronouncing, signifying, or making known the object they represent. So this morning, the first object we're going to look at is a picture of the sun. Now bear with me through the statistics here, but this is quite amazing. The sun is 92,960,000 miles from Earth. This is the same distance as traveling the world 3,733 times. The sun is the very thing that keeps the earth alive. It brings the sprouts up out of the fresh soil and it keeps the plants and trees reaching for the sky. They have specific organs in their cells that convert sunlight to food energy, also known as photosynthesis, right, good. Sunlight is the sole source responsible for providing food on earth. The most common references to the sun in regards to light, are in regards to light and heat, and thus responsible for the Earth's climate and weather. We could fit around 960,000 Earths inside the sun if it was hollow. The sun holds about 99.8% of the solar system's mass and is about 109 times the diameter of Earth. To match the energy of the sun, we would need to explode 100 billion tons of dynamite every second. In 24 hours, the Earth travels one full orbit on its axis around the sun for 15 hours and six minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, we see the sun, on the longest day of the year in June, we see the sun for around 15 hours and six minutes. On the shortest day in December, we see it only for 10 and a half. The sun consists of hot plasma and magnetic fields and is about 13 billion times brighter than the next brightest star. It's about 10 million degrees on its surface, which is the part we can see, and 27 million degrees at its core. The sun's light and heat take about eight minutes to reach the Earth's surface. Furnace Creek Ranch in California's Death Valley holds a record of, anyone have a guess? It's in the hundreds, 134 degrees. In just minutes, it will go from that and the sun will drop behind the horizon to its resting spot. It's a short glimpse of the sun. The second picture we'll look at today is a picture of the sunset. A few weeks back, my family and I were in Maine, in Maine visiting my grandmother. The picture you see here, I took in the front lawn of the cottage she stays in. The house was built facing west, allowing this spectacular view of the sunset each night. You see the clouds mixing with the falling sun to display a canvas so spectacular and this same kind of beauty even caused Mahatma Gandhi to say, when I admire the wonders of the sunset or the beauty of the moon, my soul expands in the worship of the creator. So we do indeed have a God who is spectacular. He's creative. He's omnipotent in his being. How many pictures and paintings do we see of sunsets? Or how many times do couples embrace in a picture with a backdrop of orange, red, and blue colors painted back and forth in the night sky. These brush strokes we see are in part caused by different light rays changing directions and light wavelengths of different lengths. In another example, this past April, 
My family and I took a trip to Florida and enjoyed visiting some friends for a few days. The last night we were there, I found ourselves on the beach, once again facing west, watching the sunset. There was a strip of hotels behind us facing, out, facing west as well, and people were out on their balcony watching the sunset, I realized. We weren't the only ones. So sunsets are a beautiful reminder of God, the grace God gave us to live that day, and also a reminder of the mercies for the next. Both the sun and the sunset have amazing attributes that point us to the creator. Look at verses two through four. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is not speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There is no end to God's display. The sun will rise every day, and the sun will set every day. God did create the world to display his glory. John Calvin says this, There is certainly nothing so obscure or contemptible, even in the smallest corners of the earth, in which some marks of the power and wisdom of God may not be seen. I would contest that Calvin must have read Psalm 103, verse 12, before penning this. That says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. From deep in the Amazon jungle to the city streets of Wool, God is there. Something interesting now presents itself, though. If we think about these images we just talked about, they have some things in common. Silence. The sun, as hot as it is, it's not deafening. The sunset's colors and the clouds don't pierce our eardrums with infinite audible decibels. What the psalmist is saying here, and you can see in your notes, he's pointing to the fact that though these displays are silent, they are sufficiently loud to display God's glory. God does not need to be trending on Twitter or Snapchatting selfies with angels lounging on clouds to be made known. And for the record, there's a lot wrong theologically with that, so you can see me after if you want to talk about it. <laughs> Creation gives us a picture of God's glory, and it leaves us without an excuse of knowing that he exists. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Or Ecclesiastes 3.14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. He's done it so that people will fear him. We have now, now seen who God is and how he displays himself to us through creation. Wayne Grudem speaks on this subject in his book, Systematic Theology. He says the following, These evidences of God are all around us in creation to be seen by those who are willing to see them. It's important to note that these objects can make us aware of God and his beauty as we see them with our eyes. But continuing with Grudem, it must be emphasized that scripture nowhere indicates that people can know the gospel or know the way of salvation through such general revelation. End quote. People cannot know their, of their need for salvation through the objects in creation alone, as beautiful and intricate as we just learned. It's through the inerrant, perfect, and sufficient words of scripture that he draws us to his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few characteristics of God and how we can be drawn to him through them. 
In verses 7 through 12, I've pulled out eight specific things the word does. We'll look at each of them briefly. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So the first thing the word does is revives the soul. Revive means to restore to life or consciousness. Our soul is dead to sin and to the world. The word can literally give our charred hearts life, filling us with joy and love and purpose, as we'll see in a few minutes. The word is the waterfall of truth that we should stand under. Without the word, we could not understand our eternal state, and we could not fully see the glory of God or appreciate it for what it is. Psalm 42.5 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the word revives our soul in a magnificent way that cannot be explained other than through Jesus Christ. The word revives the soul, and secondly, the word gives us wisdom. This wisdom, it doesn't speak of head knowledge that's achieved through vigorous study in the academic world or an IQ higher than anyone else. This wisdom is referring to the knowledge and the ability to distinguish between good and evil. A wisdom needed in making good decisions that stand out and apart from this world. It's a wisdom woven so deeply to the heart that when our head and our heart are unified, it gives us a great hope in the risen Lord. There's decisions that we need to make each day that we come before God with, asking him for guidance. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given to him. J.I. Packer is also very helpful in this. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Let me be clear. The best and the highest goal is Christ. So we have the wisdom given to us through the scriptures that points us toward an eternal home. I pray that we can move in that direction. The word revives the soul. The word gives us wisdom. And thirdly, the word makes us rejoice. Verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Has your heart ever rejoiced? Has the veil ever been lifted off your eyes to see something that formerly was blind to you? These moments are given to us by God to encourage and strengthen us. If you've given birth to a baby, or are about to, or your offer is accepted on the house you want, or you graduate from college, you're able to rejoice in those things. In an example from the scriptures, ultimately, we focus on 2 Corinthians 4, and this describes as well, the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So remember our two images, sun and the sunset, though beautiful, are not eternal. I pray our eyes would turn to the author and giver of life in rejoicing, as I stated earlier, not out of duty, but out of an overflow of the heart. 
Psalm 13, 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We should turn to him in thankfulness for saving us, for bringing us up out of the pit of hell and into his everlasting arms. So the word revives the soul. It gives us wisdom, makes us rejoice, and fourthly, the word helps us see clearly. Verses 9 through 10. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of a honeycomb. Money can be the biggest blind spot for mankind. It can steal, cheat, destroy, and often tear apart. It can cause us to be blind to the needs of others and often breeds greed and pride as we seek out our security and worth on earth. Gold has been and still the standard by which we measure wealth. Did you know that the Federal Reserve Bank in New York's underground vault in Manhattan holds 7,000 metric tons of gold? As a society, we value money and wealth in the world today. It's the goal of investors and financial institutions across the globe. It's what we think about all the time. Henry David Thoreau says this, it's not what you look at that matters most, it's what you see. So the word helps us see clearly a picture of our need for Christ. What would happen if our goal was to know Christ and make him known? Where would our priorities lie if that was where the end to which we pursued life? Well, the scriptures help us see clearly that everything is rubbish, as Paul says in Philippians, compared to knowing Christ. Let us see Christ clearly with a vision of our eternal home. The word revives the soul, gives us wisdom, makes us rejoice, helps us see clearly, and fifth, the word sanctifies us. Sanctification can be defined as follows. The progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. This is why we talk a lot about discipleship here at Mill City Church. God has given us each other to be challenged and held accountable for our words and actions. We do this by holding fast to the scriptures and believing them as true and perfect, not only in word, but also in action. We are not perfect, though and thus need to be refined and molded to be more like Christ. This sanctification process is an important part in the growth of the believer, and it must be treated that way. A Christ-centered worldview is birthed from being sanctified. This is a, not a day or a week-long process, but will continue through a lifetime, and it does lead us nicely to our next point, that the Word not only sanctifies us, but gives us joy. Joy in knowing that all that's written in the Bible is true, as we learned earlier from John MacArthur, true without exception. It's the assurance of knowing this is not our eternal home, but a temporary place where we can strive to live for him and know him more. Joy is waking up in the morning knowing the creator of the universe loves you and cares for you. It's, it is a joy that brings great assurance. Isaiah 12, 3. This verse has brought great encouragement to me. Listen as I read this. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
This is a picture of what this looks like. When we experience the joy of the Lord, we will continue to run to him with our arms spread open. Joy is the lifeblood in our veins and the, ultimately the overflow of our hearts. It is also the permanency of knowing Christ intimately. Let us press on to this end. So the word gives us joy, and in that joy, seventhly, the word also gives us satisfaction. Psalm 90, 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That is a great way to pray as we start each day. It will focus our minds and our hearts on the important things in life. What does this look like, though? It may look like the single person being satisfied, being single, knowing they are complete in Christ and don't need a spouse to make them happy. It may be the married person putting the pursuit of Christ above the desire for approval or the desire for sex. In any situation, it is more satisfying to love and serve Christ than it is to serve this world and its desires that easily entangle us. It is more satisfying and it is more amazing. The word gives us satisfaction. And lastly, the word gives us purpose. Romans 9.17, Scripture says about Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Without the reality of the scriptures, our lives would be meaningless and dead as we've learned this morning. The word tells us that our purpose is for God to display his power in us as we go to the ends of the earth proclaiming his name. Hear me say this. You have a specific God-ordained purpose in this life. Each one of us does. A specific God-ordained purpose in this life. This is a purpose that he has fulfilled already to its farthest extent. And the word tells us that with full and final authority. We've seen that the word of God is our very food that sustains us. And we've been given very real things here that the word of God will do in the obedient believer's life. His work in creation is sufficient and amazing and perfect and points us to the scriptures in the same sufficient and perfect, beautiful way. This is amazing, but we have one barrier that now is in front of us. Our sin is the barrier to seeing and doing these things. Look at verses 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. You'll see in your notes, we are all born sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From our entrance into this world, our hearts are hard and we're separated from Christ. Not one of us is born without sin. From day one of a person's life, they need to be taught to obey and listen. My children don't choose to share their new Ninjago Lego set as their first option in an overflow of their hearts and a love for their brother or sister. We can't fathom our own depravity or our faults that reveal themselves in so many areas of our life. Ultimately, this is the reality of our state before God. What King David shows us here in the psalm is a reliance upon God and acceptance 
that Christ's death is the only thing that saves us and makes our broken hearts whole. I would ask that we could pray with King David and say, as in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Here David is admitting his wrong and showing us the result of accepting Christ's death on the cross as our only means of salvation and how he washes away our iniquities. There's two other verses here that are helpful to understand this. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the picture of a person who admits their sin and turns to God. And you'll see again in your notes, there is no stain or blemish, only a risen Savior. This morning we've heard about the beauty and intricacies in God's creation and His Word. We've seen eight things that the Word does for us in pursuit of Him. We've seen that our sin keeps us from experiencing God fully. And we have seen that there is now hope because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It leaves us with a choice, a decision to make. Well, Matthew 6 lays out that decision for us. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we close this morning, we're going to look at three specific points of action that will bring us and teach us how to store up treasures that last and the results they will bring. So first, the first action is admit your sinfulness. So when we admit our sinfulness, we admit a need for a savior. We recognize our incapability of controlling our own lives. We break the bond that is torn by our pride and self-centeredness and we open our hearts to him. What is the result? Well, the result is brokenness. We admit we can't do it. We can't live a life according to our own plan. Instead, our brokenness points to the cross. We point away from ourselves, and we point to the giver of life, and the giver will get the glory. So our action of admitting leads to brokenness. Our second action is ask. You ask God to consume your life. We move from deepening on our own strength to a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and compassionate, and a God who will answer every prayer we turn to him with. So we move from depending on our own strength to asking God. The result of this? Dependence. Not on ourselves, but on him. Dependence on God, who will never leave us, never forsake us. Our dependence is seen to him as acceptable only because of the cross. Third, third action, allow him to do so. Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
allow him to enter your heart this morning and bring you that joy and that satisfaction that we've talked about. That is the result, joy. Allow him to do so, the result is joy. What greater joy could there be than living with the creator of the universe as your guide, as your very breath, as every beat of your heart? Today we've seen God in his creation and the need for the gospel. We've seen, as we've discussed, how sin is the barrier to us seeing God in those areas. But through the cross, we are redeemed and we have seen practical ways that lead us to that direction. I'm going to pray this morning that as we leave here today, we can think about that joy set before us. I'm going to end this morning uh, with one phrase here. And what I want us to do is, uh, as the team comes up, I want us to close our eyes. And as I say it, I'm going to say it twice. And I want us to picture ourselves to understand what this means. So listen the first time through. And then as I say it again, I want you to try to understand what this means. And this is on the bottom of your notes as well. And then I will pray. John Piper says, The more thy glories strike my eyes, the humbler I shall rise. Thus while I sink, my joy shall rise immeasurably high. The more thy glories strike my eyes, the humbler I shall rise. Thus while I sink, my joy shall rise immeasurably high. Father, your word this morning is the very food that sustains our lives. There is no other thing that can do that. That is my acknowledgement to you today, God. I pray that we can believe that with our whole hearts. Lord, let this word penetrate deeply into our hearts. Let us turn from our sin, whatever that may be. Let us run to you. Let us run to you and cling to you and desire you more than anything else on this earth. I pray that we would seek in our relationships with our family and our friends and our coworkers and our student friends and our children, Lord, to be more like you. But I ask that we wouldn't try to do it on our own. I pray that we would look to you to guide us, to give us that wisdom and ultimately to give us that joy in our hearts to do it not out of a duty or an obligation, but out of a love for you that is passionate and real and life-changing. That is my prayer for us this morning.